You're listening to Undercurrents, a podcast series from Nerdy About Nature, where we'll be discussing recent studies, reports, and news from the world of environment, ecology, and climate, which all impact our understanding of the world and the way we relate to it. In other words, it's all those unseen things that happen without much notice that impact the direction or flow of our society and the world that we all share. Nerdy About Nature is a passion project whose primary goal is to provide free access for all to education about this world so that people can enjoy it more, build connection to it, and fall in love with it, and ultimately work in ways to steward it for future generations. We do all this through short and long-form videos all over social media, at Nerdy About Nature, as well as this podcast you're listening to right now, and it's all made possible thanks to support from folks like yourself. If you're enjoying the content we're creating, you can help keep it going by supporting us at patreon.com slash nerdyaboutnature or at nerdyaboutnature.com. Nature's pretty neat, you know. Let's keep it that way. Uh, What's up, Jules? How you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing all right. How was, uh, you just got back from Antarctica. How was that? Oh my gosh. It was great. It was a lot. Um, a lot. Of, it was beautiful. It was exciting. It was a challenge in some ways that I was really excited about, like new things I hadn't done before. And I don't know. It's just hard to sum up, but it was awesome. Was it dramatic? I saw you sent me a, a video of a penguin, <laughs> a baby penguin being eaten. <laughs> yeah, it was like day one, the first thing really that we witnessed in like third day of the trip because it takes two days to cross. Right. And then the first thing we do is like go to land and we're walking around looking at baby penguins and right in front of me, like like 10, 15 feet away, we watched a baby penguin get eaten alive by a southern giant petrel. And it was just tearing it. Yeah, it was wild. It was brutal. It was one of those moments where you're like, whoa, that's really cool. But also, damn. Nature. <laughs> Yeah. That's why I come here. Yeah, pretty yeah. Uh, pretty awesome. Um, it's been a minute since we've chatted. I know, yeah, quite a bit of news has happened in the time that you've been gone and since you and I last spoke when you were down in Chile. So uh, I've got a couple of news stories for you here today. And I have a backup one because I also have a feeling that maybe you picked at least one of these ones. Just because they seem like they're up your alley. Maybe. I have one news story and I have one scientific paper and sort of like a bonus small scientific thing, another paper Ooh. that I wasn't going to go into a lot of detail on, but it's just kind of like a fun little tidbit. A little fun um, fact. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Um, but I've been pretty on a loop with news and I have had like a whole thing about that because... I was on the ships and it's you're like not in regular internet connection and so you're kind of checked out from the world and the state of things and then coming back and trying to get caught up on the news and then feeling really frustrated with like the state of news communication in Canada and its relationship to social media and like mm. that whole thing was something I was thinking a lot about and getting frustrated about the last couple days. Um, so I'm interested to see what kind of news stuff you've been tracking and paying attention to because my current relationship to the news is a little complicated right yeah it, the the social media thing is horrible like i've seen stats about like how many people these days but usually like younger kids like those in like their like 20s and younger um how the majority of them get their news solely from social media so having no access to news on social media 
in Canada is a pretty, um, I don't know, existential thing. It's like this big threat where like all of a sudden you have like an uneducated mass of people. Like how are they supposed to be in touch with anything happening, not only from an environmental um, landscape, but like political, like how, like healthcare, all these social issues. Like how are we not allowed to even share that with each other? It's crazy. Yeah. I, I posted a little thing about this because I was feeling really frustrated about a lot of the things that are happening in the world, in particular over in Palestine right now, and like how there's like important developments happening that I'm simply not allowed to access and share through these different social media platforms that I spend a fair amount of time on. And so I, I like posted a quick little thing about that, just being frustrated um, and also like asking a question to people like, you know, what do you do in, in lieu of that? And the conversations I ended up having as a result of just sharing these few little stories were very eye-opening. First, like a lot of people had no idea, including a lot of people in Canada. They responded to my story just like, that's a thing? Are you serious? Like, why? And so a lot of conversations I was having were just like explaining that that's a reality and how few people were really aware of it. And then the other sort of set of conversations I had was a lot of people who were like, well, just read the news. And, and I was like, yes, obviously that's the solution. But the question is more about how, how you access that news. Like what is, it's not, at least in my world, it's not as simple as just like opening it up. You know, I don't get a newspaper, a physical newspaper anymore. And so like, do you subscribe to different news sources apps? Do you get emails? Do you every day like go onto the website and and search for the articles yourself? Like the actual how of how you come across that news and access it is not as straightforward, I think, as we want to like just assume it would be. Yeah, well, and not only that, but I feel like it's a social thing more. It's like reading the news is is good and it's a good way to stay informed. But so much of actually being informed and engaged is like being able to converse with people. And that's where social media comes in because it allows people to have discourse over it. You can like go into ideas, you can express yourself, you can like actually learn and engage with the information in a social manner, which is you'd think how you would want society to operate, you know, in a social manner, not just like siloed things like you do your own research and you do that. And then we talk about it like... It just makes more sense to be able to converse about it as a society. But yeah, exactly. And the thing that's wild about social media right now is we can't share any primary sources. People like individual accounts can still like post their opinions about what's happening. But when it comes to primary sources, which would be the equivalent of like the raw data or whatever, the direct more objective reporting is what's not allowed well you can screen grab it and share a screenshot you know it's the same right (laughs) (laughs) yes i guess (laughs) but yeah i just was thinking about the sort of social media effect of siloing and bubbles and some of the people's responses to my story was like you shouldn't rely on social media for your news anyway because of the bubble effect and in a sense i get that sentiment i agree But also, this is just going to make that worse because you can still recycle opinions and hot takes and other things that are more catered toward that siloing bubbling effect than not sharing like the more objective primary news sources themselves. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and then on top of that, there was a recent announcement from Meta, so Instagram, Facebook, that they weren't going to actively promote any content on their like discovery pages. You know, like the discover, it's like if you go to search or something, it's like what just pops up in your feed based on what you think you'd like or mm-hmm. what the algorithm thinks you'd like. But they're not going to be actively promoting any posts that talk about an ambiguous definition of social issues. So like, what does that mean? Like, they're not going to be sharing. I mean, obviously, like, I feel like this is like an effort for them to kind of control the amount of misinformation going on out there. And like, for sure, that's needed. But when you're not allowing society to talk about social issues, like, does that encompass not just like the political he said, she said of like the Trump, Biden, hoopla, whatever's going on there. But does that like go down to like what's happening in your neighborhood? Like, like everybody should be able to like express our opinions on what's happening in society. And then what is the bounds of society? You know, does that include environmental stuff? It's like about nature, but like you can't have an opinion on policy because it's a societal opinion on how nature is, you know, it's this weird thing. It's like, what does that even mean? And then they've haven't gone into any further definitions of what it means. So it's just, you're kind of like at the whim of these tech giants, like, okay, I guess I'll say whatever you'll allow me to say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, all good questions. And I don't know the answer to any of that stuff is, but I'm certainly feeling a little fed up with it right now. Quite, quite. Um, So that brings us to the news. news. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So have you heard of the Atlantic meridional overturning circulation? I've heard that term. You want to tell me more about it? Have you heard that it is um, showing signs of imminent collapse? I have heard bits and pieces of this, (laughs) yes. Do we have some news on an update on that that is going to be frightening well i first heard about this like i think three weeks ago which is right after we had recorded our last episode so i wasn't able to talk about it then obviously um but yeah apparently um things are going like pretty much on track and much more advanced in the stages of what they assume a collapse of AMOC would look like. And this is a really important thing for a few different reasons. So this big Atlantic current is basically responsible for bringing warm weather up from like the equatorial regions, the Gulf of Mexico, up along the coast of North America, of Turtle Island, up towards like Greenland, Iceland, where it cools because it's obviously colder up there and gets more dense and flows down to sub uh, to like benthic areas of the ocean and kind of creates this cycle that like distributes a lot of nutrients and things around this ocean. And it's also what's responsible for bringing um, warmer weather to Europe, to like all of Western Europe. Similar to how, for those of you who are in North America, if you think of like an El Nino, you're like, oh, the El Nino is like what's creating a warmer winter. It's because there's warmer water at the surface that creates warmer weather patterns that when they hit the coast of uh, Turtle Island on the West Coast, it brings warmer weather. That same kind of thing happens more regularly in the Atlantic, and it's what's responsible for bringing warm weather to all of Europe. So, Mm -hmm. you know, this is... And oxygen. And, yeah. the rest of the oceans. And nutrients to a lot of the oceans. So, like, all the... We'll, we'll get into that, all the plankton and stuff. But so they've been running models on this for a while, and these models have had you know different inputs and influxes, and, and obviously like supercomputers can only run so much input at a time. But um, you know one of the models that they <clears throat> mentioned in this was one that they ran over a twenty five hundred year period, like they ran the model like over that scale of time, and it it in this model they had to put more freshwater inputs than are actually occurring because they were limited by the capacity of the computer to actually get like more specific on that 
And basically in 2,500 years, that means that um, the results that they saw was that average temperatures in Europe, like London, dropped an average temperature of about 10 degrees Celsius. And up in Norway, I think Bergen, Norway was where they used, was about 15 degrees Celsius um, average temperatures, which is a pretty significant drop. Granted, that is a model over a 2,500 year span. What they're seeing now is like, basically like on track for that to happen within the next hundred years. Whoa, that's a bigger update than I was aware of. That's news. Yeah. So based on that that old model where they got this understanding of how this collapse would look, they're looking at where we are now and they're like, hey, temperatures are a lot higher than we thought they would be at this period in our existence. Uh, and this based on this model and trajectory collapse is most likely going to happen in the next hundred years, which is terrifying. Now, it's also important to note that this is something that has happened naturally, like over the past 100,000 years with like different fluctuations, they've, you know, seen all sorts of geological evidence of this like cold period as recently as 12,000 years ago, when the recession of like the, the ice sheets from the last major ice age, um, because again, like that basically pushed down where the water was cooling further down south in the oceans. Um, so that this cycle wasn't completing at the scale that it currently does because there was much more colder water as well as more fresh water being poured in as those melted. So it's basically this influx of fresh and salt water that like disrupts the way that things cool. And yeah. 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 It's, it's interesting you bring this subject up because when I was down in Antarctica, that's one of the subjects I actually lecture about or include in some of my presentations and stuff on those ships is um, these global patterns in both ocean and atmospheric currents that make Antarctica this cold, frozen ice continent, whereas the same latitudes north in northern Europe and um, parts of North America, it is not the same weather pattern. And largely that's because of differences in the way that these circulation patterns go. And the one that you're referring to is is part of that cycle where the warm water is carried up and funneled into the Arctic. But in the southern half of the world, there's this big ring around Antarctica that is like a, a, a circular current that forms sort of a barrier preventing anything like that from happening in Antarctica for now. Um, you know, that there's no um, equivalent current in ocean water that would bring warmer water from either the South Pacific or the South Atlantic down to the Antarctic current, because when it gets down there, it kind of hits this like circular current that currently goes all the way around Antarctica in an uninterrupted pattern. And I like, I think of it sort of like a merry-go-round or like a, you know, those like toys that kids on playgrounds, like you spin it really fast and they're like like death traps that probably don't exist oh, anymore. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's you know like there's about? no way you're jumping onto that thing when it's moving at full speed. Exactly. It's kind of the same effect. So these currents like hit this thing while it's ripping around in a circle and it deflects those warmer currents off. Right. Um, and the north half of the world doesn't have a, a physical equivalent of those currents. And so instead, in fact, the shape of the lands and the currents interact to funnel warmer waters up into the arctic and that's why you can like live in norway yeah yeah interesting and so we were talking about that and like how important that cycle is while i was just down in antarctica um because it is a huge factor in terms of like why there's ice where there is and 
why there's not ice in certain parts of the planet. And if that cycle collapses in those current patterns that both funnel warm water in some places and prevent it from other places collapse, that has drastic changes on the Earth's climate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting one because it, it shows too that it is like a climatic kind of thing over the entire world and it's not global warming because people are like what what do you mean global warming if you're saying that it's going to get cold in europe by like 10 degrees 15 degrees you know it's like yeah okay that's not global warming it's because the average temperatures are rising it's disrupting all this other stuff that might lead to cooling in certain parts of the world but that's kind of part of the broader climate change which is why it's kind yes. of a big deal and these are like large scale changes that we cannot rapidly and easily adjust to northern Europe being frozen over like Antarctica. Yeah, I mean, it it said in like 15 degrees, like a 15 degrees Celsius swing, like cooler than it is now. That's like, what is that, like 30 degrees Fahrenheit ish? That's that's a that's really cold. That's like a big temperature swing and in an already cold part of the world. Well, like also the consequences it has not just on the temperature in northern Europe, but like what else it does to the circulation of the oceans. And I know that I'm biased because I think about that subject a lot, but how we keep oxygen throughout the depths of the oceans, which prevents large areas from going anoxic, also relies hugely on that cycle of currents that you're talking about. Right. Which actually brings me to my other news thing. And I'm just going to I'm just going to just roll on that because it's all related. So. As you probably are aware, we have recently gone through the hottest January on record. Um, It was a whopping 1.7 degrees uh, warmer than pre-industrial levels, which means that our annual level from January 2023 to January 2024 was um, was a higher average temperature of 1.5 degrees uh, higher than the the. pre-industrial levels exactly higher than pre-industrial levels which is uh not a good thing especially considering that we're really trying really hard to keep the average um temperatures below 1.5 degrees celsius right now the average since that time is about 1.25 but as things continue to get hotter and uh you know uh emissions are still rising and temps are too we're likely to hit that by that 1.5 degree threshold by 2030 is a new thing i read and as part of that, the ocean has been warming for decades. We've known about this for a while, the average temperatures of the ocean. And uh, for those of you who maybe saw this on social media, this was like a common thing that was actually screenshotted from the report and shared around on social media. And very few people were actually talking about it, um, especially from like a news perspective. I didn't see much news out there about it. But basically, January 24, um, Basically, the the ocean temperatures have been getting crazy hot as of the last year, like March 23. um, It kind of set like the highest record for March. And every month since then, it has been the new highest record for that month, breaking the average or breaking the records for total temperature twice, once in August 23 and once again in January 24. So basically, the ocean is getting really hot really quick. And this leads to a common phenomenon that you've talked about many times and is ocean stratification, where you have like a layer of really warm water up top and cooler water down below. Do you want to talk about the impacts that that has? Because that's your kind of shtick. I'll plug the fact that we have a long in-depth episode where people maybe could go listen to it in more detail. But yes, when... Yes. Pod chat... 
It was uh, my second pod chat with Julia. I want to say it was pod chat eight or nine. I don't quote me on the number there, but we talked all about ocean currents and this one in particular. Yeah. So I won't go into that level of detail, but like, yeah, it's a big deal because ocean warming has really two main effects on oxygen. One is just that warmer water holds less dissolved gases in general. So it just has less oxygen content as it warms up. And the second thing is the warm water on the surface warms faster than the underlying water. And then that's less dense. It doesn't mix as much. And mixing is the main way to deliver oxygen from the atmosphere that is dissolved in the water at the surface back down into the depths of the ocean. And to be clear, I'm talking about O2 dissolved, like gases, O2 gases dissolved in the water not the O and the H2O. Right. So it's H2O mixed with O2. Yeah. The O2 gas is the breathable oxygen that fish and organisms can use in the water, not the O that's in the water. Right. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. Because when we posted that that pod chat before and a little clip on social media, there were people confused. Like, wait, you're saying that there's like a C of just hydrogen down there with no oxygen at all because you need oxygen to have water but it's like it's not the water molecule it's oxygen intermixed with that yeah oxygen gas dissolved in water that enables anything that's respiring so basically all large organisms to live in the ocean so when oxygen runs out it's massive consequences for the habitat in the water where fish can live um coral reefs close to shallow seas um, and lots of other like huge downstream consequences that that other longer episode go into details about why that matters for like ocean chemistry and climate and stuff like that. Well, and I think this little bit of news in tandem with the whole like Atlantic current collapse thing is interesting because it like, you know, these are two systems that rely on a lot of intermixing of that benthic, that lower layer and the upper mm-hmm. trophic layer and stirring all that together, not only for the oxygen, like you mentioned, but like a lot of nutrients too. So you have like a lot of plankton that we are currently counting on to like help with climate change because, you know, like they'll absorb CO2 from the atmosphere. And then like when they sink and fall down, they become like entombed basically in those low oxygen layers beneath like at the bottom of the ocean. But those plankton also rely on nutrients brought up from the ocean layers in order to grow in the first place. So not only are we seeing like more acidic, hotter waters up up on the top that make it difficult for those plankton to survive, but they're also not getting the nutrients because of that lack of mixing happening between these layers of the ocean. Yeah. And we're talking about mixing between layers on smaller spatial scales that happen with the stratification. But then the the story you talked about previously is like mixing on a really big scale, these conveyor belts, they kind of, they call them that, that sort of turn the oceans over, over longer periods of time and larger spatial scales. And those are also threatened by the changing in temperature and inputs of fresh water from melting ice caps, et cetera, et cetera. So there's different scales that we're talking about that are threatening these sort of uh, processes that keep the oceans replenished and refreshed and oxygenated and mixed up. Right. 
Now, speaking of scale, one of the common things that I heard uh, from many of the Instagram posts sharing our previous Ponchat episode was like, you know, what's stopping a just incredibly smart, wealthy human like Elon Musk from just building a couple big, like, basically egg beaters and mixing up the oceans? Like, can't we just do that? Like, surely privatization of all this capital will save us somehow, right? Ross, I was doing so well about not making this about capitalism this time around. <laughs> Also, Elon Musk does not invent the things that he purchases from other people and then pretends to be the inventor of. And I'm not going down that path, but <laughs> I'm just going to say that. But it's just scale that is beyond anything humans are currently able to even consider addressing. Like, we're talking about an area in the Pacific Ocean, for example, that's like, imagine the size of Mexico but like turned sideways and sort of stuck out from the side of Mexico out into the Pacific Ocean. It's a huge region. This is not the size of like a coastal community or a bay or like one stretch of the coastline. This is like a massive area um, that is anoxic and expanding. The zone that is anoxic is expanding. And then there's another one of those in the South Pacific off the coast of Chile. And there's another area that's like, basically the entire Arabian Sea and the Bay of Bengal on the other side of India. And like, these are not scales at which we're currently capable of trying to like jerry-rig our way out of this problem. Right. And, and another way just for people to think about it is like, because we are terrestrial animals, we mostly live on land. Imagine the biggest city you can think of right now. Maybe it's the city you live in. Maybe it's Tokyo. Now imagine a big egg beater a big mixing device the size of that city right now imagine that city in the middle of the ocean an egg beater the size of tokyo in the middle of the ocean an ocean that is bigger than all like there's more ocean on the planet than there is landmass the the planet is 71 percent oceans like that tiny little egg beater of this the size of tokyo is going to do nothing when it comes to mixing up the currents of these oceans like it's not this isn't something that we can just rely on technology to just ingeniously fix you know yes like a lot of earth systems it can be shifted slowly through time through these incremental changes but there are not quick fixes to bring them back into a, like to like control their function in a way that we have direct access over. So we can alter them by, for example, pumping CO2 into the atmosphere for decades or by starting to remove that CO2 over decades. But we can't just simply like put on a big fan that's going to like change the where, where the wind is blowing on a global scale in a meaningful way. Totally. And, and even if we could, I mean, this kind of goes into like a more philosophical realm. Like I hear this a lot with people talking about the idea of geoengineering and being able to be like, oh, well, if the planet gets too hot, we can just inject aerosols into the stratosphere and that'll cool the planet in localized events and yada, yada. And to me, it's like more about like, a, yeah, we could, but like ethically, morally, like, should we be doing that? Like, is that really, are you just like so okay with like continuing the status quo that that's the future you want to create? Like, we also don't know what that's going to create. And that's still only just a band-aid impact. It doesn't stop 
climate change from continuing to happen because of all the carbon we've put in the air and continue to do so through our emissions today. Like it's just something so that we don't feel the effects as much. But then as soon as you stop doing that geoengineering, all those effects accumulate even more rapidly and it would be even hotter the second you stop doing it. So it's like, yeah, that is like a possible quote unquote band-aid solution, but like it doesn't actually solve the problem. And should we even be entertaining options like this? Yeah. And from my perspective, as a person who kind of studies Earth systems from a scientific point of view, I think it's a little naive and arrogant when I look at just how much we know versus what we don't know. We're not really at a point where I think we could effectively and meaningfully change those systems in a way where we know what we're doing. Like, I think we could attempt maybe to geoengineer some things, but we don't know all the intricacies of the interactions that happen to like accurately predict the consequent, like the outcome of these actions we might think we're going to have the impact we wanted. And a lot of that comes down to the fact that the geoengineering perspective is based in a fairly like reductionist mindset of viewing the world and nature as like a machine that is the sum of its parts and can be like reduced down to, you know, cause and effect of different pieces. Whereas what we know from a lot of biology, and we are realizing a lot of earth systems work this way as well, it's a lot more of emergent interactions that the whole is more than simply the sum of the parts and there's interactions between parts that can't be predicted from just like a a bottom up way and so maybe someday if we like really invest heavily in climate science and geoscience more broadly we might get to that point where we understand how all the pieces interact with each other and we could say if we tweak this part of the system it'll have this outcome but we're not anywhere close to that and so it's it's really playing with fire, I think, to try to like start tinkering with those things on a large scale. Yeah, um, this is kind of down a, a, another little left field path here. But are you familiar with Timothy Morton? They're like a philosopher based out of, I believe they live in Texas now, but they're from the UK. So they have that lovely British accent that just makes them sound super smart. Um, but they've written a couple really great books about this. Some of my favorite kind of more philosophical reading in this kind of Anthropocene era. Um, one book in particular is called Being Ecological. 100% recommend it for everybody out there who's looking to get in some really heady philosophy. But one of their um, really like concepts that really struck me is this idea that you mentioned that like we have this this reductionist perspective of a thing is worth the value of the sum of its parts, right? And just to use like a car as an example, you know, we look at a car and we're like, oh, the value of the car is the value of like the frame, the tires, the all the luxuries, the alternator, the engine, all the components and what those cost to create and then put them together. And that's like the value of a car, right? So let's say you have a car that's worth like $50,000 and then you remove the alternator, a part that costs like 50 bucks, right? And all of a sudden that... $50 part is now worth the $50,000 that the car is valued at because like that car is nothing without unless you're able to start it. So it's like this idea that like, yeah, you can summarize like that. But if there is no new alternator and and it's neglecting the idea that like you can't just like plug in a new piece to this like global system and like replace it with like a new one that you found, you know, like at a used car lot or something. It's like 
the, that idea that like these the sum is so much greater than like the, the sum of the parts and the value of the individual parts is even greater than the sum of those parts because without the one piece that makes it all work together then it's all useless you know yeah well and it's a little baffling to me honestly this approach and the and the appeal of that approach because when i look at the complexity that would be required to take this sort of engineer our way out of the problem um, approach like that's so much more work than just doing like why don't we just work with the engineering the pieces we already understand which is co2 levels and like let's just we know that th those factors control global climate in significant ways when we crank co2 up and down and that's a piece we understand so instead of just being like these CO2 emissions are inevitable where well, we're going to have to like reinvent clouds to make up for <laughs> yeah. that. You know, I'm like, let's just work with the pieces we already right. know about. Why bother changing when we can just spray a bunch of titanium oxide into the atmosphere? I mean, that just makes sense, right? Yeah, it's like the solutions would be a lot easier to tackle what we can already work with. Yeah, I agree completely. I don't. I feel the same way about the discussion of like, oh, we have to colonize Mars. I'm like, you know how much work it's going to take to make Mars habitable when we've got like a pretty habitable planet already that we could just work with, <laughs> continue living on. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so that's that's what I got for you. What, what do you what do you got for me? <laughs> how did we end up about colonizing Mars from warm oceans? Um, it all makes sense. I'm sure. I'm confident that everybody listening right now is right on the same page with us. I feel it. <laughs> <laughs> All it right. made sense, right? My news stories, well, one news story and one paper, um, a little bit more lighthearted than the shutdown of the global climate system. <laughs> um, Good. And a little, Thank you a for little saving bit more, us. <laughs> a little bit more niche interest, but I thought this struck my interest from a um, science point of view. So it's kind of news oriented toward those people who do science and want access to scientific information. Um, maybe an overlooked story. Maybe it's just that I think it's more important than other people do. But I saw this news earlier this week about a change to the dirt. <laughs> Cut that. Please cut that. Let me say that. Um, a new story about a change to the Duke University herbarium. Have you seen or heard anything about this? I have not, no. Basically, um, they're shutting it down. And it's a big deal because it is a, a staple in sort of like modern botanical education and scientific research is this massive collection that they have at Duke University. And it's created sort of an uproar in the scientific community about this specific event, but also some sort of deeper soul searching about how we value access to scientific resources and data and sort of like public archives. Um, so the Duke Herbarium, just to summarize some of the key details here, it has um, almost a million. It has 800,000 specimens of different organisms that fall broadly under the category of like flora, but that's not just vascular plants. So it also includes um, some of the largest collections of 
the largest collection in the U.S. of algaes, lichens, fungi, and mosses, in addition to vascular plants. And so it's kind of like among people who do botanical research or research of any of those other categories of, um, of flora, a really, really important resource for being able to access all these different specimens, um, collect DNA samples, look at physiological details of these organisms. Um, and it's just kind of like a massively valuable archive of information for the scientific community. So is it just because I'm, I'm so is an herbarium, is that like a, a library of sorts of like preserved species? Or is it like kind of like a giant greenhouse of all these living species of plants and stuff? Yeah, so this one is, there may actually be a living component to it as well. I don't know that. But what this closing is um, kind of like a, a library of preserved samples. So a lot of times those are like pressed, dried um, leaves or dried mushrooms pieces. Um, it could involve anything from like really large tissue samples all the way down to like tiny microscopic preserved microscope slides with, you know, uh, pollen grains on them and things like that. So it's it's a way of recording archives of data, which this is where the, sort of the soul searching piece comes into question with the scientific community is like, I think archives of data are less thrilling. Like they're not like interactive and fun and they have like reputations of like dusty old libraries and things like that. But a lot of science is made possible through having access to large archives. So you might have like some new question that is something you just came up with res respect to like a new change. And in order to collect enough information to sort of piece together a big enough answer to that, you need years and years of samples going back through time or across a large diversity, perhaps uh, like a, a, a taxonomic diversity. And so it would be difficult for any one researcher to go out and get enough samples to answer their question because it just takes so much time and resources to go get enough samples. But these public archives create access to that size of data without individual researchers having to go collect it all in every single time they have a question. So why, why are they shutting it down? Is it like a budgeting issue? And the, what are they going to do with all the samples? Are they just like throwing it in a dumpster out back? Like it just seems kind of reckless, you know? Well, and this is exactly the uproar that's coming out of that is, um, yeah, it's a budgeting issue. It's uh, the facility. It's, it's one of the herbariums has been around for the longest amount of time. And it's like given Duke a reputation of being a leader in the biological sciences because of how long they've maintained this really extensive, um, comprehensive archive. But it's just too expensive, I'm using air quotes, um, to maintain the facilities and the curation of these archives because it, it requires employees to maintain these samples and the facilities that keep them preserved and safe. And so I, I say like too expensive in air quotes because it's a budgeting choice. You know, it's not that the university doesn't have the $25 million required. That's estimate of what they, they're saying the price tag on keeping the herbarium would cost them $25 million. They have that money, but it's a choice. It's a prioritization of like what they think is worth spending that money on. Wow. Yeah. 
And so it's it was just an interesting one to me because I think a lot about the value of these sort of access to public resources um, and how they're not immediately, it's not immediately obvious what the value of those resources are, but without them, you're limited in so many of these large breakthroughs that couldn't have happened if they weren't there. And so it's it's really hard to justify sometimes. You're like, well, why do we need these 3000 moss samples? You know, no one's working on them right now. But the but the choice is like a societal one to say we value archiving knowledge and information and samples and keeping them available for when people could use them, whether those people are the the public or scientists or someone else who comes up with a question and needs access to those resources. Uh, see, like, why why do people suggest that uh, Elon Musk can build a giant city-sized egg beater to save the oceans, but, like, no one's... Like, where's the philanthropy to step up and do something like this? For example, I just did a really quick Google here. Jeff Bezos makes over $26 million a day. Every day, he makes more money than that. Like, why couldn't he... Like, why... Where's this capitalism being put to good use? Can't he just like donate the money to like keep something like this around for like another year? Like 26 million sounds like a lot to like us average peons here, but to like the amount of wealth that exists in this world for things like why are we spending money trying to get to Mars? Like again, it's well, value. And that's and that's the question around these like the value of public goods. Uh, like a public library, you know, like they st- store a bunch of books that nobody's reading right now. Like they hold on to things that aren't of immediate use that you can't say what the current demand is for this thing. And if that's the thing that determines value, then technically there there there's no value in that. But collectively, at least at some points in time, we've decided there is inherent value in having those things around and available even if no one's using them right now. And this is just the science equivalent of that same dilemma. You know, it's like, what's the value of maintaining archives of information that people can use when they need them, even if they're not in demand at this moment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the idea of it, like it being a public resource for the public good, as opposed to like an economic product driven model, you know, it's like how it's basically coming down to an issue. It's like, oh, this herbarium isn't making us enough profit to justify keeping open. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. God. And that's, I don't, I don't have a good solution for it. I just, it was a striking news story because of those deeper philosophical questions about what this really means in the context of access to information and resources and um, what that does to the state of like human knowledge. Right. Right. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Definitely um, conversations worth having for sure. Yeah. And I feel like something worth, I, I kind of wanted to like, bump it in the news cycle through talking about it because it is something that might slip under the radar. It's not as like headline worthy. You're like, oh, an an herbarium is closing. Like, okay. Um, But like creating attention around this one can have a cascading effect too, where we start paying attention more to like how we choose to value and maintain these types of resources more broadly. And this is just a specific example of it that brings that question up. But, you know, maybe this if there was a bunch of public attention on like, hey, I value the existence of this herbarium at Duke University, even though I'm never going to go there and I'm probably never going to look at those moss samples. But I 
as a person want that to continue existing. Mm -hmm, because it dictates science and the understanding of our world and how we relate to it. Yeah. And I just think there's intrinsic value in maintaining open access to resources and knowledge. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, to answer your other questions, there's no clear plan right now about what's going to happen. Um, when other herbariums have closed in the past, they usually get the samples get shuffled around. They don't get rid of all of them, but some do get lost. Like some of them are very precious and delicate and just simply moving them around and trying to change facilities. You do lose a, a decent chunk of samples when that happens. Um, but the, ma the, the main impact is that these samples, even if they still exist, they usually get sent to places that, well, obviously never had them before. So they're not set up to uh, host those samples. So they'll go put, be put into storage, but they're not accessible in the way that they were previously when they were in a facility where everyone knew that if they needed something, they could go to that facility to get it. Yeah, where it's like cataloged in part of the of the store. And now it's just kind of in a box and the storage in the back somewhere. You got to like root through manually. And it's going to be somewhere else, like far away. And so if people have, re like, like if researchers are at Duke University because they are there to work on something that they require the herbarium for, um, now it's, you know, I don't know, in Minnesota or something or somewhere like very different. And it's it's just a question of how we prioritize these things so that they stay accessible, because simply existing is not the same thing as being accessible and usable and in a place where they're it's conducive to 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 that use. Um, so that's, I think, the main fear people have with the shutting down of the herbarium is not simply the loss of samples, but just that it's the loss of accessibility. Right. Yeah. And so it's current. It's a new thing. It's just been announced and they don't yet know what the answer is. Um, some people are trying to raise money, but it seems like it's inevitable. That it's going to get shut down. And um, yeah, just a little piece of news from the science world that kind of, I don't know, soul searching. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Not as depressing as the ocean collapse, but still <laughs> along that, that vein. <laughs> Yeah. All right. You know what? Next next week I'm going to I'm going to make myself come with a positive piece of news. <laughs> I, yeah, I think I'll I'll shoot for that too. It would be great to to do that. We always just kind of end up going down this wormhole. And it's kind of like I recently saw some clips from Idiocracy. Have you seen that movie? Uh, years ago, my chemistry teacher made me watch parts of it in a class. It was <laughs> Dude, great. Yeah, I don't know so if I watched good. the whole thing, though. It's so, I mean, it's terrible. It's a horrible movie. But it's such a good, just like, reflection piece on it. And, you know, it was it was kind of trending when uh, Trump was in office the first time. Because in the movie, there's, like, a really ridiculous president. And uh, I, I guess, like, stories like this kind of remind me of kind of going down that dystopian future where it's like, people value just co consumerism and ra like crazy random things and not valuing education and sciences and having access to this sort of stuff and like the devolution of appreciating science and fact and like the realism of the world that we live in you know and like the, where is that going to lead us in the future like what kind of world is that going to create when nobody is educated or even cares about it because it's too easy to have distractions that keep them from even thinking about it 
Oh my God. Did you see the video? This is totally unrelated news, but did you see the, the thing that they announced with uh, the new open AI software that generates videos? I saw pieces of this. I mean, from like I, a from... single line of text, you can create this like super rich, immersive video that is like a million dollar production for a film for a film studio to create and you can do it from a single line of text in AI and it's just like that is yeah cool but also so overwhelming like I just feel like as if we don't have enough distractions from our daily life that is just going to continue to eat up more while also devaluing the arts and people who do sort of creative work and then ultimately like what kind of future is that going to create for us like yeah it uh, was it's been a let me tell, it's been a wild week, like being com- almost completely out of touch with the world for about three weeks and then trying to like get caught up. And like, it. Yeah, you wouldn't think that three weeks would be a lot, but it it's it's a lot Yeah, <laughs> to, to try to recalibrate to like what is currently going on, what is catching people's attention, what new changes have happened in those three weeks and the state of everything. It Yeah. It's a lot. I mean, I I just think. Do you ever see those like sci-fi movies where people are in like an alternate reality and like it's changing around them all the time? Like whether VR or they have like a little, I don't know. There's like a room where they can go into and there's just like a world that's created around them. I think like seeing this AI thing happen was just like for me like being like, oh my god, like we could have that sort of like sci-fi space where you're just so disassociated from the real world, like within a decade at the rate that things are going, which is mind boggling to me. But I also try to hold on to optimism in that, like recognizing human patterns. And I think if we do get to a state where people are just like, so inundated with like the craziest visuals, the most beautiful fake sunsets and like action films and all this stuff, like it's going to reach a point when we just become numb to it. And then maybe hopefully that'll spur some sort of like reawakening of like, you know, being able to see cool things in real life with your own eyes that aren't on a screen, you know, and maybe that will like, it'll, the pendulum will swing so far in the tech side of things that it'll actually promote people like trying to retreat away from the tech and getting back to like being outdoors and in person with their their experiences rather than just trying to live vicariously through a screen. Yeah. That's me being optimistic Can hold on to that. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, concrete reality, can I tell you about the paper that I read and thought oh, was kind of cool? It's kind of about some concrete reality related to forest ecology. Oh, hell yeah. Let's hear it. I know it's a favorite subject. I, um, I'm a sucker for forests. <laughs> Guilty. Yeah. Um, this paper um, is in Nature Geoscience just a few days ago, February 13th, titled Drought Response of the Boreal Forest Carbon Sink is Driven by Understory Tree Composition. Understory Mm. dash tree composition. So big picture context here, looking at um, questions about how drought affects how well different forests can produce carbon or like primary productivity, so produce carbon compounds, taking CO2 out of the atmosphere, sequestering that carbon into soils or other forms of woody debris, and um, how that changes depending on the composition of the forest. And specifically, this was in 
colder climates because a lot of this work has been done on temperate or tropical forests because this is a big question, you know, like as weather patterns change and forests either warm up or dry out or whatever, how is that going to then have feedback effects on the climate through changes in primary productivity? But not as much work has been done in colder forests to see what those responses are going to be and what we might expect from it. Um, and so let me see, what other context can I give here? Um, the paper was based in Northern Europe, so different continent, but, you know, probably principles that are applicable and could initiate or like uh, be a reason to look at whether that applies in other parts of the world, like here. Um, and what they did was collected data on primary productivity, soil moisture, a bunch of other factors from a bunch of stations across different types of forests. And the key here was that it was like 50 different stations. So not using like one or two forests as comparative samples and trying to extrapolate from that, but actually like having a huge number of sampling sites that they sampled repeatedly over time um, across all these different heterogeneous aspects of uh, parts of the forest because there's a lot of heterogeneity in, in boreal forests. So instead of relying on like one or two case studies to maybe hopefully represent the average trend, they did this over a larger scale of space and time so that they wouldn't have to do as much extrapolating. Yeah, I love that. It's yeah, great to it's, hear. It's great and requires investment in sort of these like large scale data collection efforts that not to intentionally connect this to my last story, but is sometimes harder to sell from a scientific research point of view because it's easier to be like, here's my one question. I'm going to go to this one site, sample some things, measure it, and have an answer. And that's like easier to package and sell and cheaper to conduct a study like that. But to propose a research project that's like, I want to collect lots of different types of data across lots of different locations for a long period of time, and then use that to sort of piece together a story in the end is a lot more expensive and harder to get approval for. Because as a general trend, we tend not to value sort of larger archival projects that are just like, even the word monitoring sort of like has a bad taste in a lot of scientific communities mm -hmm. of like, mm -hmm. oh, there's no value in just monitoring things. Um, yeah, even though that monitoring is what gives you perspective to reflect upon and see how things change or evolve, like you need to have adequate monitoring in order to figure out what's happening. Well, exactly. And that's kind of, you know, the herbarium is sort of like a monitor, it's like equivalent of like monitoring of like biological diversity within the plants. And, and it, you don't necessarily know what question is going to be asked from that collection of available data. But once it's there, it enables much bigger and more thorough analyses. And similarly, monitoring environmental factors, like in this case, primary productivity and soil moisture and things like that, in and of itself, may, may be hard to sell like why that's inherently valuable. But when you have such a large data set, you can then answer these questions in more powerful ways, even if you didn't know exactly what you were going to see when you set out on the project. But it's probably another conversation for another time. And I know even my own colleagues have heated and differing opinions on the value of quote unquote science that's like monitoring based versus experimental uh, 
question-driven science. And that's its own whole subject. But <laughs> this paper, part of the reason they were able to answer this question in a more powerful way was access to this large data set across space and time. And um, the result that they found is pretty cool. And I, I appreciated sort of the complexity of how they looked at multiple factors and looked at how it affects different parts of a forest in order to get a more complex answer rather than trying to just like crunch out a bulk answer that's like, you know, this one factor has this one end result. So instead of looking for something like that, what they did was they broke it down by the age of the different stands of forests and the composition of these forests. And the age and composition were related to each other because younger forests tend to have a lot more understory composition, um, whereas older forests are more tree dominated in terms of like bulk biomass. And that ended up being one of the major factors that determined how these different forest stands responded to drought conditions. Hmm. So in the younger forest where there was like more biomass, like all the different sorts of things growing in the understory, I'm assuming it held on to more moisture and was less prone to fire? Other way around. So oh. um, the understory plants are more vulnerable to drought, it turns out, in that, and part of the reason, they gave a couple reasons for this. Um, when there's really high density of understory plants, there's high competition for water. So they're all like trying to take up water quickly, um, which results in like stripping more water out of the soils more rapidly because it's a high density of competing understory plants. Um, there's also less shade from trees in a younger stand. And so it dries out the soil more and the understory plants themselves are like exposed to more heat. Um, and then the the size of these plants is another piece that matters. And specifically the ratio between the like fleshy um, living tissues relative to the dead tissues that could store water. And so in smaller stemmed plants, like understory plants, they basically use water more than they store it because they're smaller stem. And so there's a lot more like leafy green vegetative matter that uses water relative to the amount of tissue that's like dead storage like tissues that can just store moisture if right. you think of like a big old tree the living tissue is just a thin layer on the outside of that tree and the bulk of that tree is just tissues that can retain moisture throughout right. the year yeah that right? makes sense and there's less transpiration going on. So in the smaller plants where there's more green, they're growing faster, um, thinner, more delicate membranes, like transpire more water. So they're like, they're growing more, but they're also losing a lot more water in that process versus like a tree where it might be growing slower, but especially there, they're all conifer trees. So like, it's like a lot of moisture is retained and not let out, especially in droughts because they have, you know, the use of stomata to retain that water. Yeah. So they found that, the composition matters, but not necessarily the specific species. Oh, cool. So it's not about like which tree species. It's more about the ratio of how much is understory vegetation, which they just define as like non-tree. So that's like shrubs and berry plants and things like that versus the amount 
of the forest that is larger tree species, like tree plants. So that's the piece of the composition that actually has the biggest effect on how much these forest stands are resilient to drought and how much their primary productivity is affected by drought. That's really cool that it's uh, not species specific because that basically implies that that what they're finding out here is relative to the entire boreal forest across multiple continents, which is awesome. It's like not just species specific. And then so these areas, these younger forests that are more susceptible to drought because when drought hits them, um, there's all that competition and the sunlight, which reduces the amount of water there that dries out quicker. And then that is what, is there any correlation between that like drying out and affectability of drought to wildfires? This paper didn't look at that. Um, I'm sure that that's a factor. I'm almost like, it's, I'm, I would be surprised if it wasn't. Um, this paper didn't really go into that. They were, they weren't just looking at like whether the forest, uh, stays alive or not what they were specifically measuring was the amount of net ecosystem production so like the total amount of carbon-based biomass that's produced in that area over time and how that is affected by drought and so i'm sure that by drying out that also leaves these stands more susceptible to fire. They're also warmer and drier. And like, how could that not <laughs> lead you to being more susceptible to fire? But this was more about not just how that biomass could burn, but how much gets produced. And so the whole idea is like, one of the impacts of climate change is increasing drought in areas that were not necessarily dry before. That reduces the amount of primary productivity that could happen there, and then less carbon is sequestered. And that could be potentially a positive feedback effect on climate. And so they're just trying to see, like, how much does drought actually affect primary productivity in these different ecosystems? And primary productivity for those who are listening in, like, what the heck is she talking about? That's just, like, basically how much plants are able to, like, pull carbon out of the atmosphere to grow in the first place. Yeah, how much carbon gets pulled out of the atmosphere and turned into biomass that stays on the ground. Yeah. And it's like a a big effect. So it's not just like a, oh, like 10% more or something like that. It was like twice, let me just double check, yeah, twice the reduction. So, so the drought, drought conditions reduce primary productivity across all of the different forest uh, ages and different and compositions. So there's always a reduction, but the amount of reduction was twice as much in younger forest stands that were like 20 to 50 years old compared to old, what they were defining as old, older, old growth stands that were 130 years old or older. So it's not old growth in like the, the oldest sense, but stands that have had like a long time to reestablish with big trees. Right. More, more older, more complex, mature forest ecosystems. Yeah. So it was a huge impact that the age and composition of these forests ended up having on how drought affected primary productivity. Yeah. That's so cool. Like I've, I've, Obviously, and if you, like people who are following have, have been familiar with my stuff on social media for a while, like I've always talked about how old growth forests are 
you know, better at producing at, as primary producers than younger forests because of the amount of area and mass they take up for photosynthesis. Um, and there's been many studies talking about that, the amount of carbon sequestered and stored from an old growth forest being much more than younger forests. I haven't, not only have I not heard of like a, a study like this done kind of in a boreal setting, but done relative to water availability and how that limits productivity, which is a pretty cool thing to be hearing about. Yeah. And one of the take home messages that the paper sort of emphasized in the conclusion and the summary of this is that a lot of the times questions about impacts of either any any piece of climate and how it's going to impact forests, usually those studies focus on the tree layer. So the things that we define as trees. But if you want to understand the impact on the forest ecosystem as a whole, the actual net impacts may be less driven by how the trees respond, but more about how the ecosystem as a whole responds. And this was an, an example of that because if they just looked at the tree response, the effect was a lot less noticeable and in some places not even significantly different. But as a whole, the ecosystem had a huge difference in their impact. And that was largely due to these other pieces of the ecosystem, the understory in this case. So like that was one of the pieces they kept emphasizing was that you need to kind of think about the different pieces of the ecosystem as, and think of it as a, as a whole interconnected ecosystem, not just the trees and how they're going to respond. So a forest is not just the trees. Yes. <laughs> ah, yes. I love it when I feel like I've been saying, I've been repeating myself for years about stuff like this. And then you find something that like confirms it. And you're like, I fucking told you. I've been telling you guys for so long. A forest is not just a collection of trees. It is a functioning ecosystem. And you have to consider the entirety of the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll send you this paper. We'll put the link in there too. You can take a look at it. There's, there's a lot more that you can like go into the details of exactly what they measured and how they broke down their statistical analyses. And it's a more complicated story than I've kind of chosen the main pieces to summarize it here. It's a cool paper, definitely worth some time looking into it, but um, I, a neat overall take home story too, I think. Yeah. And we'll throw all the links to the things that we've talked about in this episode in the podcast notes below. Um, I also, I mean, I had a backup story that I was planning on using if you had gotten the ones about oceans, but it's relative to forests here now, so I'm just going to throw it out there. It's a little bit more localized for people in BC, um, and it's just kind of like basically the shortcomings of our political systems. But so basically, if you're in BC here, you know that old growth has been a topic for a while, protecting old growth, and you might have been familiar with the term of an old growth management area. Have you heard of this, Julia? I've heard of it, yes. So a recent study came out looking at these old growth management areas, which are areas that are defined to be, quote unquote, protected to manage for old growth characteristics within a harvest tenure. But the issue is that the boundaries of these old growth management areas can move around and change during tenure sales. So when like a sale goes from one company who's been logging it for a while to another company, that new company can be like, hey, can we just move this uh, old growth management area here, like move these boundaries over here? And the result is that they actually don't protect old growth forests which um, many people on the ground have like seen for a long time. But the study found that as a, like 
of all the old growth management areas in BC, most of them are considered young forest. About 58% of them, or 58% of the old growth management areas are young forest, with actual true old growth forest being just under a third of that land. And 70, or sorry, not 70, 37% of the old growth management areas in the entire province didn't contain any old growth forest at all. Oh my god. <laughs> so yeah, not only is this just like a ridiculous bit of semantics with um, you know, policy and how government is like trying to protect areas, quote unquote, but then not actually because of loopholes and stuff yeah. that the industry likes to to use as much as possible. But then when looking at like the bigger picture of the province and Canada's like dedication to protecting thirty percent of land and waters by twenty thirty as a means of preserving biodiversity and ecological function in the wake of climate change, which is like a big thing that they're pushing for right now. Um, it just shows the ineffective measures that we actually have in place to actually effectively protect things. So currently the province says that about 19.6% of lands are protected. 15.5% of that is in existing parks, which if you're looking at forests is mostly low productivity parks, like as most of our park areas are like high alpine glacial areas, you know, like Strathcona Park, um, Garibaldi, like all these parks that like are protected, but there's not actually like any good high quality productive forests there. Um, and then 4.1% of that remaining bit are in other effective conservation methods, which these old growth management areas are considered under. And so right now they consider that to be 4.1% is protected. But if we're looking at like what's actually protected and you're like not actually protecting old growth within the definition that says you're protecting old growth, you're mean not actually protected. Protecting exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like, great. We've got whatever percentage in protected areas, but what does it mean to be in a protected area? Exactly. And if it, the protected area isn't even protected, it's like, why are you even calling it a protected area? It's just like, again, silly semantics. And I think overall, it reinforces the importance that we need to create like a biodiversity and ecological framework within the province and create like a chief biodiversity officer who manages forest ecosystems, again, not just for economic values, but for the biological and ecological values that are obviously important. Yeah. And perhaps like having some more concrete metrics that are more directly related to the goal. Like, okay, instead of land surface area that falls under some category with an arbitrary name, what if it's just like percentage of old trees that are still intact, you know, or like using metrics that are like much more directly measurable in a meaningful way? Well, that's there's there is like a framework that's been introduced to the legislation right now that's currently kind of making its way through. It's it's called the biodiversity and ecological framework. And that if that gets instilled is exactly what that would do, because right now the government can like literally like just protect a bunch of the most unprotected or unproductive land, high alpine areas, glacier like designated zones, desert and protect 30% of the lands and be like, we're protecting land for biodiversity, but then continue to destroy the most biodiverse and rich places of the province. But that framework would basically divide that up so that there, it would close the loopholes. So the province can't just protect any old land and call it good, but actually it has to focus on protecting the most biodiversity or biodiverse and ecologically at risk areas first. Well, that sounds like an interesting piece of legislation that when there's news updates on it would be good for us to maybe track and see what comes of it. Yeah. I, I mean, there was a public comment period that ended on uh, January 29th or 30th that I've made a push for. And hopefully people were able to submit comments, but as far as I know, they're just kind of reviewing comments and deciding what to do now. So 
and we'll definitely keep people updated on how that unfolds because it's an important piece of legislation we need in, in a changing world, you know? The world is changing. We've got to change with it. So hopefully for the better. You got 30 seconds of patience for me to just tell you my little fun fact nugget? Yeah, let's hear it. Okay. This is simply because of where I've been and my focus on Antarctica lately. But I just learned that moss beds in Antarctica um, are archives of information. I'm on an archives theme today, <laughs> unintentionally, um, because they grow slowly and don't really degrade over time because it's so cold. And so this accumulates over time and they are can be used basically as records of climate and 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 climate records, but are basically old growth forests. These little tiny moss beds in Antarctica, they don't turn over at a high enough rate um, the way that moss ecosystems and, more, and warmer places would. So they can kind of be thought of as these like miniature old growth ecosystems that are also archives of climate information and can help us learn more about like how climate has affected polar regions in the past. Oh yeah. Crazy. Kind of like peat, like where peat moss is like the lack of, of decomposition because of the anaerobic waters like stores a lot of carbon, like the same thing's kind of happening in the mosses because it's just so cold. Nothing decomposes. Yeah. It basically is just a, a record of the material over time that records things like growth rates, which reflect you know how much how warm it was whatever season um it uh, pollen gets stuck in the leaves of the moss that records that um the diversity of different moss species or lichens and or lichens growing in these little moss beds get recorded um in dead insects are preserved in the layers of moss uh, and also like amoebas apparently can even be preserved in the moss which reflects whatever nutrient conditions and other physical conditions were present in the moss at that time. And this one kind of blew my mind. Even um, the presence of debris, like little bits of dirt or sand or salt from the ocean can be used to reconstruct wind conditions over time because they can see like how much debris is getting blown onto and oh, off of yeah. the mosses. Interesting. So, like, so many kinds of information are recorded in these layers of mosses. Um, and in Antarctica, that's like, th there's a, there's two flowering plants that live on the, in Antarctica. But otherwise, almost all of the vegetation is moss and lichens that grow on rocks. And so these mosses in Antarctica function as the old growth forest ecosystems. They're just really oh, that's tiny. that's crazy. That's so cool. Isn't that cool? That was just a fun little nugget. I didn't. It, I saw it in a review paper. I can send you the the review paper. It talks about archive, all kinds of biological archives, and these moss beds are just one of the few that it talks about. Um, so I can link to the paper, but it was just more because I was just there thinking about Antarctica and looking at all these little moss beds, and what a fun little connection to old growth forests back here where we live. Oh man, I love it. That's so all cool. Right. Nature, <laughs> what a beauty. Yeah. Well, that's what I got for you today, Ross. All right. Well, thanks for joining me today, Julia. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And we'll catch you in a couple weeks here with some more news and updates on the world that we all, we all share. Mm -hmm.